Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The history of Mormon fundamentalism is complex and is full of schisms and violence, but also many human lives and families. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, like almost any religious group, is constantly in flux. Big changes have recently occurred in the state of Utah, where a bill called SB 102 is altering and amending the way bigamy is handled within the state of Utah. One person who testified at the Senate and House hearings is Dr. Christina Rossetti. Dr. Rossetti completed her PhD in religious studies at the University of California, Riverside. And in this conversation, Dr. Rossetti and I trace the history of Mormon fundamentalist communities throughout the American West, discuss law enforcement raids conducted in polygamous communities, chat about the distinction between polygamous marriage as a freedom of religion issue versus being an issue of doing harm, and we discuss her recent article about SB 102 titled Making Polygamy a Crime Hasn't Helped Its Victims, recently published in the Salt Lake Tribune. So this is a big history lesson packed into one conversation. This is a conversation in which I personally learned a lot. I would highly recommend following Dr. Rossetti on Twitter at Christina Marta R. And the link to Dr. Rossetti's Twitter can be found in the show notes. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Christina Rossetti on Mormon fundamentalist history and the present day developments changing the legal status of polygamy within Mormon fundamentalist communities. Dr. Christina Rossetti, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me. It is a delight to have you here. If you could spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit, that would be great. Yeah, I have a PhD in religious studies from the University of California, Riverside, and I'm an independent scholar based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, Most of my work is ethnographic, and I focus on the lived experience of Mormon fundamentalists in the Intermountain West. And right now, my most current project is I'm working on the biography. So it's a little outside my normal wheelhouse. It's a historical project. Um, so it's the biography of St. Joseph White Musser, a Mormon fundamentalist leader who I'll undoubtedly talk about. Um, and it's under contract with University of Illinois Press. That is fantastic. So um, we are here today to talk a little bit about your research and writing into the topics of Mormon fundamentalism. Was this your area of dissertation research when you were doing your PhD program? It actually wasn't my dissertation specifically. So my dissertation looked at different Mormon groups that don't have a direct lineage to priesthood authority or what Mormons consider the power of God on earth. Um, And so you don't have a direct lineage of priest authority through some kind of unbroken succession um, of men passing down the priesthood. And so instead, they actually communicate with spirits of the dead in order to gain authority and establish their movement. Um, Two of those groups were fundamentalist. Um, The other groups were LDS, and one of them is called the Godbeite Movement. They're a 19th century breakoff of the LDS church led by William Godby. They were called the Church of Zion, but colloquially, the Godbeite movement. Um, So in part, but uh, when I talk about my research generally, um, 
you know, fundamentalism is so often equated with polygamy. And so, of course, when we talk about fundamentalist Mormonism, polygamy does definitely hang in the background of the conversation. But um, the marital structure was never kind of the most exciting Mm -hmm. thing to me. And I was interested in kind of highlighting what makes fundamentalist Mormons fundamentalist that isn't necessarily just about how they're married, um, even though right now a lot of my work deals with polygamy legislation. Excellent. And we're going to dive into all that legislation soon. I have a lot to learn from you on that. Um, How did you come to find a passion for this particular topic? Like what motivated you initially for going into this area of research? I get asked all the time how I got here. Uh, It really started my first year of graduate school. Um, I was interested in the 19th century. I was really interested in communal utopias. And I did an independent study with the professor that became my advisor. And she assigned Rough Stone Rolling, the biography of Joseph Smith. A lot of people might be familiar with it. It's by Richard Bushman. It's incredible. And I became captivated by Joseph Smith, by the idea of a Mormon restoration of what is even is a restoration of this community of people that were willing to give everything for this idea. And, but I was also interested in ethnography. And so my advisor told me to go meet Mormons. And so I did. Uh, I went to institute, I went to LDS meetings, and ultimately I met fundamentalists who completely changed the trajectory of my research um, in, and my life, really. Mm, okay. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about this term fundamentalist the last couple of days whenever I've been diving into your work. And I'm wondering about your understanding of this term fundamentalist. Um, I'm wondering if you can define what makes a religious practice fundamentalist versus not fundamentalist. Yeah. So, I mean, the use of fundamentalism is complicated. I, I use the term fundamentalist only related to Mormon fundamentalism because that's really what I know. Um, of course, there are religious communities across the globe that have either used the term fundamentalist or been given the name fundamentalist almost disparagingly. Um, But I use it as an umbrella term to discuss a very specific movement, but also a very diverse movement. So most people hear Mormon fundamentalist and they think of the FLDS. That's kind of the most common. And that makes sense because in 2008, people watched the raid um, of Yearning for Zion on CNN. And because the name fundamentalist is in the name of that church, of course, people will kind of come to associate the two. But the reality is fundamentalist is an umbrella term in the same way that Mormon is an umbrella term. Um, Most people might not know that there's actually hundreds of different groups that all consider themselves to be Mormon. And many of them are fundamentals. I think one scholar actually said that there's over 400 different groups that all claim a lineage to Joseph Smith. And one of those is absolutely the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or FLDS led by Warren Jeffs. But the reality is all FLDS are fundamentalist Mormon, but not all fundamentalist Mormons are FLDS. So it's a big term that encompasses a lot of groups and families and churches. Um, When I use the term specifically, I use it to designate a Mormon who believes in the quote, you know, fundamentals. Uh, And that what those mean vary widely between groups and churches. Not every group thinks the fundamentals are the same. Um, but usually fundamentals and the fundamentalist movement involves the continued practice of polygamy. That's kind of the most notable one that is most obvious to outsiders. Um, a belief in living some kind of consecration. So continuing this 19th century communitarian ideal. And a belief in the Adam God doctrine, which 
is the 19th century belief that Adam or God is the exalted man, Adam. Okay. Well, and you mentioned something a moment ago that I think about a lot. Whenever we label something as fundamentalist in society, you mentioned that disparaging manner in which people from the outside tend to talk about people who they label as fundamentalists. So is fundamentalism largely used in society in ways that put a negative taste in the mouth of people who use that term in a seemingly disparaging manner against other people with whom they disagree? Like, what's your um, idea here on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a long history of using that term to make people seem strange or weird or not like us. Um, And fundamentalist Mormons actually didn't give themselves that name. Um, In the 1970s, it was actually Elder Mark E. Peterson, who was an apostle in the LDS Church, and he first used that term to describe the Mormons that still practiced polygamy. Um, There was a great signature book, Gary Berger at Signature Book released the diaries of Leonard Arrington a few years ago. He was a church historian in the 70s. And we got a really interesting look at how the church dealt with the fundamentalist movement and the huge rise in fundamentalism that happened in the 70s. And it was in there that Marky Peterson and Boyd K. Packer kind of decide that we don't want these people in our church for sure. And this term really kind of comes about. Um, I often hear LDS people tell me polygamist Mormons aren't Mormon or polygamists aren't part of them. Uh, And the reality is the LDS churches who gave them that term. So today, Mormon is no longer widely embraced by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm going to say LDS because it's it's a long name. Yeah. Um, But Mormon is widely embraced by the fundamentalist movement. And fundamentalist Mormon is embraced as well. The communities that I know, the families I know, don't consider it to be a pejorative. Um, They would just call themselves Mormon, but fundamentalist isn't seen as negative. I actually co-moderate a fundamentalist history forum on Facebook. (laughs) Um, And it's a lot of fun. And it's mainly fundamentalists who are doing really cool history and really interesting research. Um, And the person who started the group is a fundamentalist man and he moderates with me. And and the the group has the word fundamentalist in it. So it's certainly not something that is considered derogatory. And I have seen many people actually celebrate it because when given the term you're fundamentalist Mormon, they're like, yeah, we believe in the fundamentals. That's not wrong. So something that a lot of listeners may not know is that people that uh, might have labeled previously as Mormon, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they're no longer embracing necessarily the term Mormon. What is the story there? Like, when did this start going away from their popular usage within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? So that was actually last April during general conference. President, the president of the LDS Church, Russell M. Nelson, talked about how um, you know they're not Mormons; they're members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're members of the Restored Gospel, and so there has been a, which is interesting because you know, especially under the presidency of Gordon B. Hinckley, there was an embrace of Mormon. The Meet the Mormons campaign came out. The I'm a Mormon campaign happened. And so Mormon became something celebrated. Uh, And Joseph Smith, actually, the founder of Mormonism, for those who don't know, uh, talked about Mormon meaning more good. And so there was a long history of celebrating it and liking this term. But President Russell M. Nelson really wanted to kind of not use it anymore. There's an increased focus on Jesus Christ. So over time, if you look at the logo of the church, the words Jesus Christ get bigger throughout history Mm. in the logo. Um, And now there's the Christus is the new logo of the church on top of the name of the church. So 
there's been a real Moroni was replaced. It's a, there's actually a big joke in Salt Lake City that wow. the earthquake happened. So there was an earthquake a few weeks ago in Salt Lake City before conference and Moroni lost his trumpet. And there was this big joke that he loses his trumpet and he loses his job as the figure of the church. Oh my goodness. That is so interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Because like, you know, normal people who might be listening to this, like driving in their car on their way to work every day or, you know, working from home right now as we are want to do in the current pandemic situation. But, you know, th this term of Mormon, which has been so widely accepted, moving away from that is going to be news to a lot of, you know, everyday people. Yeah, it, it, I mean, and it's only, ha it's only been in the last year that this has really been an emphasis. So, of course, it's, you know, it's definitely news. Um, but the, the shift in the logo was only a few weeks ago at this mm. general conference. So that's been interesting to see the reaction. For those who don't know, the Christus statue is actually Lutheran. Um, it's in a Lutheran church in Denmark. And so it's now being used as the symbol of Mormonism. So there's been a lot of interesting conversations surrounding what that looks like. Um, but, and there was actually a great article in the Salt Lake Tribune where a fundamentalist Mormon responded to the change and he said, great, we get to be the Mormons again. Mm, this is so interesting. I mean, the ongoing change of religions around the world and the way that they react in real time and context and place and just in response to laws and, you know, the internal diversity is just so intriguing over time mm -hmm. in, in any religion. I mean, Oh, like, Absolutely. It's, it's just alive right in front of our very eyes is mm -hmm. all we have to do is look for it. Yeah. All right. So before we get into, um, you know, some, some terms, we're going to talk a little bit about Mormon fundamentalism and how that doesn't, and, and also we'll talk a little bit about FLDS, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but these are not exactly the same thing correct? Because you mentioned earlier that there's like hundreds of different groups and they're not all FLDS, but they are Mormon fundamentalists. Right. And I mean, I'll, I'll, we'll when we talk about the history, one of the things that is interesting is the FLDS with that name as an organized institution under the incorporated name FLDS wasn't until 1991. Okay. So for all of this history, the, the entity called the FLDS didn't exist. Um, the entity called the Apostolic United Brethren didn't exist. So, and there's a really specific reason for that. Um, so the history is actually really long, <laughs> obviously, and complex. Uh, so I'm just going to hit on kind of the big dates and key players that I think really make this story what it is. Um, I think many people view polygamous Mormons, and they kind of maybe imagine that they have the same history as the LDS church, or maybe that they're LDS people who just have polygamy still. Um, and that's not the case. Just like any religion, even very small religions like fundamentals Mormonism, they have their own very rich history. Um, and it's a history I love, so I love talking about it. So stop me at any time if I go too long. That's fine, it's fine. So I recently read a piece of yours um, called Making Polygamy a Crime Hasn't Helped Its Victims in the Salt Lake Tribune. And I'm curious about the forming of these different fundament, uh, fundamentalist polygamous communities within a Mormon context, like over the years and like how these communities have developed and grown and changed over time. So can you tell me a little bit about how the fundamentalist communities of like Utah and Arizona came to develop and what were some crucial events to helping these communities develop? Yeah, so fundamentalism it really kind of starts 
quote unquote, in 1886. So for people who might know about the LDS church and they hear, you know, 1890 is the year that Mormonism, quote, ended polygamy. 1886, you might think, what? That's before that. Um, but fundamentalism really starts in 1886. And there's a document that the LDS church does not consider to be an authentic document, but fundamentalists do. And um, I actually think it is written in John Taylor's hand. And that's the big controversy is who wrote it. Um, but it's called the 1886 Revelation by President John Taylor, who was the third president of the LDS church. And at the height of outside prosecution and persecution, uh, John Taylor is in the home of Lauren C. Woolley in Centerville, Utah. And in the telling of the story, he meets with the resurrected Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith, and they confirm to him the unending nature of eternal principles. Um, and in Woolley's telling, after that happened, Taylor ordained six men to what he called a higher priesthood um, necessary to keep polygamy alive. And those men are George Q. Cannon, Joseph F. Smith, John W. Woolley, Lauren Woolley himself, um, Charles Wilkin, and Samuel Bateman. And if you're familiar with Mormonism, a lot of those names might be familiar to you. I mean, Joseph F. Smith ends up being president of the LDS Church. And so the idea within this and the idea of how fundamentalism ends up continuing to work is that the LDS church is the church. It is the institution. It is the temporal organization, but there's a higher priesthood that exists outside of the church. And that is what is necessary to keep the quote higher laws, polygamy being one of them. And so this organization kind of exists believing that their job is to keep polygamy going. And Lauren Willie actually says very emphatically, that no one in this movement is supposed to start a church. No one is supposed to organize. This is our job. It's to keep polygamy alive. So four years later, of course, the LDS church releases the first manifesto. And I want to be clear that I call it that, you know, it's the first manifesto and saying that new plural marriages will not continue in the U.S. And of course, polygamy doesn't end. And the narrative, you know, the story of the polygamy ends in 1890 is really just a story because logistically it's a nightmare and doctrinally it's a huge challenge. So even just logistically, we know from Mormon history that they released the first manifesto and mass divorce didn't happen. Mm -hmm. What was supposed to happen to these children, right? All of a sudden these women don't have husbands. Like what's the logistics of that? That's not possible. So right, enforced divorce, right? Like what is, what does that mean? Especially in a religion that practices eternal marriages, right? There's, mm. that doesn't, it just, it's a logistical nightmare. What happens to these kids? <laughs> There's in these big families. Like yeah. it, I think when people really pause and think through what an 1890 end of polygamy would look like, they might realize that that doesn't make sense. So in 1904, there's a second manifesto and the church says, now we're really done. Polygamy's mm. over. But same thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, those few years doesn't make a huge change. How does polygamy end all of a sudden in 1904 with the second manifesto? It just doesn't. And unfortunately, the second manifesto isn't widely talked about. Um, but, you know, it is a document that came out and polygamy ended. Um, and there's a huge body of literature on post-manifesto marriages and how the LDS Church solemnized these ceilings in the Salt Lake Temple after 1890. So it was a kind of a public... We're ending it. Of course, statehood was on the line here. The church had lost assets. So there's, you know, good conversation to be had on whether it was revelation or political. But then in 1929, this is kind of 
the moment of the beginning of what is the modern, quote, modern fundamentalist movement. And Lauren Woolley, the man that was in the house with John Taylor, he begins ordaining six men. The last one is ordained in 1933, and we'll talk about why that's an important year. But he starts ordaining six men who will become what is called the Council of Friends. And the Council of Friends is an organization of men who were tasked with keeping polygamy alive, even now, in 1929. Mm -hmm. um, and those men are John W. Woolley, J. Leslie Broadbent, John Y. Barlow, Joseph Musser, who, St. Joseph White Musser, who I'm writing about right now, um, and Charles Zitting. And if you've ever been to a fundamentalist community or you know fundamentalists, those last names are, those are big last names. Mm. Um, those are kind of the, those are big guns. Even, even now. Community. Even now. Oh, if you go down to Short Creek, you will meet Barlow's. Um, that, is a, that is a name. Um, Musser is a name. Those are people that zitting. I mean, there's a lot of people in Centennial Park with that last name. Um, cause, because those are the big guns in the movement. And I mean, there's other really prominent fundamentalist last names like Jessup, if you're in Utah, um, Timpson. But those were the men that made this happen. So he finishes ordaining people in 1933. And lo and behold, in 1933, the LDS Church does end the practice of polygamy. So when we talk about when polygamy ended, it wasn't until 43 years after the first manifesto mm. that polygamy ended. And so in 1933, what I mean by the LDS church ended polygamy is that is when excommunication started. So it wasn't until 1933 that really mass excommunications began that you couldn't be a polygamist anymore in this church. So what happened to existing polygamous marriages and plural marriages, like what, what happened that after that 1933 sort of like cut off? So fundamentalist Mormons never stopped being Mormon. And that's a story that continues today. A lot of these people continued going to LDS church. There were a lot of bishops and stake presidents that kind of just let it happen, realizing that what can we do? Um, there were a lot of families, and I want to be clear that from 1890 all the way until 1933, families did break up so that there mm. is very much a story of LDS people separating and breaking up their families and women marrying other men um, to follow the council of the church. But in 1933, it was a unique time because fundamental or the people that kind of became fundamentalists were still Mormon. The LDS church was still their church. Like I said, Lauren Woolley told people, don't start churches. So where do you go? Right. Mm. I mean, where do you go? So, but in 1935, the Council of Friends starts sending people to Short Creek. So that's where a lot of them go. Okay. So what is Short Creek and where is this place? So Short Creek is um, the twin cities of Hildale, Utah and Colorado City, Arizona. So it's on the border. And that was a very intentional choice, making it on the border. And if you go down there, the border is a street called Uzona. Mm. <laughs> um and it's kind of endearingly and lovingly referred to as the Crick because um, a really heavy Southern Utah accent refers to creeks as Crick. And yeah. the first time I went down there um, was four years ago next week was my first trip to Short Creek. And there is a creek in Short Creek and I, I called it the Creek and <laughs> everyone kind of stopped and they were like, where is she from? Um, and I quickly started calling it the Crick. And so, uh, so it's, it's lovingly referred to as the Crick. But um, in 1935, people start, the, the council starts sending people down there. And so a lot of families go down there. Um, and there's, in correspondence between the members of the council, 
there's discussion of this is what the Salt Lake community is doing. This is what the Short Creek community is doing because a lot of people did stay. Um, and you know, there's kind of this big story of when the Salt Lake Olympics happened, FLDS all went down to Short Creek from mm-hmm. like Sandy, Utah. And I've ta- I've told people about that and they're like, why were there FLDS in Sandy? I'm like, well, cause they were from here. So, mm. um, there's, so they start 35, they start sending people to Short Creek and that's actually the year it, it was very soon after that. That's when the first raid happened. The first government raid. What year did this, did these raids begin? 1935 was the first raid. Okay. There's so three big ones. Okay. So is there like a, so on the books in the U.S. when these towns are forming in the early and mid thirties, is there laws on the books in the United States against plural marriage? Yeah. And we'll talk about the details of that, but there, polygamy is illegal at this time. Polygamy has been illegal. Um, polygamy is illegal in all 50 states. So yes, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's very easy to say, well, religious freedom, but in 1935, certainly people didn't care about that. So um, in terms of the fundamentalist Mormon community, and so Short Creek begins as a homestead community. So, and again, I want to be clear that, you know, now we talk about Short Creek as the historic home of the FLDS, but the FLDS wasn't a thing at the time. So it's a homestead community and the land becomes held in a trust and the trust is held by certain men in the community. John Y. Barlow is a big one um, who holds the trust and the big trust is the United Effort Plan. And if you go down to Short Creek, there's a big UEP sign and there's buildings that say UEP and there's the buildings that are held by the trust. Um, the trust was seized and that's, you know, a different tangential story. Um, and now the homes are kind of held by the state, but. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's not the FLDS. It's not a church. They're polygamous families living on homestead land. So the subsequent next raid happens in 1944. And in each of these moments, you know, the the Short Creek starts because of the concern for prosecution and because of the concern of excommunications. And so with each raid, the, the feeling of a need for isolation only increases because in each raid, they're right you know, that the government is after them. So that's, you know, put a pin in that. Um, And then 1954 is a big moment that um, will kind of shape the rest of the modern fundamentalist movement. Um, In 1954, there's a split that happens in the Council of Friends, because of course there is. Of course. (laughs) And that split is over issues of authority, which is the cause for most schisms in Mormon fundamentalism. So at that time, Joseph Musser, he ordains a man named Rulin Allred as his second elder. And second elder is really kind of the term given to this is the man that will be my successor. So he ordains Rulin Allred. And that lineage is the lineage that is what is now the Apostolic United Brethren or the AUB. And most people will know the AUB not by name, but they're the ones that are on television. Mm. Sister wives or, um, you know any of them. So sure. yeah, so people will be familiar with that lineage. So Joseph Musser ordains Rulin Allred and that is the that becomes eventually the AUB and they don't incorporate again until the 70s, but that is the lineage that forms the modern AUB. Okay, what years do you know when uh, pol- uh polygamy was outlawed in the United States like explicitly? Yeah, so uh, in 1862, um, okay. Abraham Lincoln signed the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act. Okay. Um, and it targeted 
polygamy on the grounds that it is quote the twin relic of barbarism with slavery um in 1882 it was amended into the Edmonds Act and then again in 1887 it was the Edmonds Tucker Act and that's the act that disincorporated the LDS church on the grounds of polygamy and it was actually repealed in 1978 but polygamy remained illegal so it's been illegal for a long time in Utah specifically um, it is in Utah's constitution that it says but polygamy and plural marriage is forever prohibited and that's not unique to Utah um, Arizona Idaho New Mexico the Mormon belt Sure, sure. In their state constitution. Okay. So long time. But on, on the other side of that, um, the one that most people will be familiar with, John Y. Barlow disagreed with the ordination of Rule and Allred. There was mass disagreement. He did not like it. And at the time, John Y. Barlow was the one that was real he was president of the priesthood. Um, and he oversaw the Short Creek community and he disagreed. And that was the schism. He did not sustain Rule and Allred he ends up his lineage ends up being succeeded by Leroy Johnson Leroy S Johnson who is lovingly referred to as Uncle Roy in Short Creek um and that is the lineage that formed the FLDS eventually so those are kind of so historically the AUB and the FLDS were the biggest fundamentalist movements um but you know that doesn't include from there there is plenty of schism Centennial Park breaks off of the FLDS the Naylor Nelson group there's so many FLDS breakoffs. The AUB are very similar, and that doesn't even include those who weren't historically part of the Woolly Council, like the LeBarons or the Kingstons or the Independents. Or do you know how the population size of of Short Creek or Creek fluctuated over time? Like, did the how did this town start off really small and then get really big? Like, what is the population change like? Yeah, so I mean, I don't know the numbers necessarily, but Short Creek was big. I mean, it wasn't by big, right? It, it was any kind of rural homestead town, it, but it was a thriving community. Um, and I think most people kind of think of what is now the FLGS and think Short Creek has always been that way. Um, but the reality is, if you look at pictures from the 50s, there's women in Levi's mm. and they're, they're a homesteading community. Um, they do eventually start wearing the prairie dresses, but that's really new. That was under Warren that the prairie dresses started. Um, but it was a thriving community mm -hmm. of, um, and if you, if you ever go down there, there's the Centennial Parks community is a thriving community. And that's very much what all of Short Creek looked like, like kids playing in the streets and families and barbecues and 4th of July. And, you know, it was a, it was a normal town. Um, and so it was large. There was an, in, there was an increase in membership during the 40s and early 50s, the raid was a turning point, um, but it still gained membership. So Mormon fundamentalism has always had people joining their movement. Um, and prior to the incorporation as the FLDS, a lot of people joined the Short Creek community. So I don't know the exact numbers, but it, it's always been a large community. Now it, it's no longer as populated. Um, but there's still incredible, like there, there's incredible things down there. I mean, one of my favorite foods in the world is jalapeno popper pizza from Edge of the World Brewing in Short Creek. So nice. It's so good. It's so good. And it's made by Centennial Park people and they make the best pizza. So, I mean, it's coming back as a booming community. Awesome. Okay. So, so these communities spring up 30s, 40s, 50s. 
And you mentioned these raids that happen um, by law enforcement over time. And so I want to talk about July 26th, 1953, a day that you write about in a good amount of detail in this piece. Um, so tell me about this day, July 26th, 1953. What happened? So 19, July 26th was the day of the, the kind of well-talked about 1953 raid. And on that day, multiple branches of law enforcement entered, entered Short Creek and I'm not just saying, you know, police officers or sheriffs, like we're talking the Arizona National Guard went in mm. and 153 children were taken from their families, including 10 from monogamous families. Um, it was really indiscriminate in just taking people. Um, many were never returned to their homes and both men and women were imprisoned. I think a lot of people assume women have never been prosecuted for polygamy and that's just not true. Um, and again, the imprisonments were indiscriminate. I have a friend who her grandmother had gone down to Short Creek just to visit family. She didn't live there and she was taken in the raid. So it was a widespread failure of law enforcement coming into a community and really causing destruction. Okay. So, you know, in an ideal world, law enforcement has a purpose to conduct a raid of an entire community. I mean, it takes a lot of planning. It takes manpower. Um, what was the purpose of the raid as seen in the minds of the law enforcement officers conducting this raid? Like, what did they see as their goal and their purpose for raiding a uh, Mormon fundamentalist community? Yeah, and I mean, like you said, they do take planning and the Short Creek community knew the raid was coming. Mm. So it, it wasn't it wasn't a surprise. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, the... <laughs> the extent to which people were taken was probably surprising. But they knew it was coming. And there's actually um, the schoolhouse down there, which is still standing. That is where a lot of women and children met while the raid was happening. And so um, if you ever go down to Short Creek, I would recommend checking out the schoolhouse because it is a really important historic site. But for the people doing the raid, polygamy was the crime. Um, there were, but more than that, there were 263 children living in Short Creek at the time of the raid. And the explicitly stated goal was to save the children from quote, immoral practice. That was it. Okay. Okay. Um, so you keep mentioning like going down there and seeing the sites of all this, like you've personally gone there several times. It sounds like, right? Oh yeah. I was, I spent New Year's there. Okay. So this is like a right now you can go is, is this like an inviting place to visit like is it is it like okay like how are you accepted whenever you visit as a um you know as a writer and a researcher so i don't research about short creek um i don't study the flds and we'll talk a little bit more about that but um you know i think the first time i went down to short creek if i had written about it i probably would have written a very different story than if i wrote about it now mm. with you know how much i've spent how much time I've spent down there. Um, one of my close friends, Lindsay Hanson Park, she was really, she was one of the first outsiders that was really welcomed. I don't know if I want to say it that way. One of my best friends, Lindsay Hanson Park, she started going down there while she was doing a podcast on polygamy. And um, she made such good friends with the community and she was really accepted. And I actually went, the first time I went down there, it was with her. Um, and she talks a lot about how it was a very different time when she started going there, which was only, you know, within the last 10 years. 
and she would be, you know, she has stories about, about being followed around and um, being uncomfortable. And that's really not the case anymore. I mean, in the last 10 years, a lot of people who had been part of the FLDS or been part of Short Creek and were either sent away or chose to leave have come back and really rebuilt the town. Mm. And so I mentioned like the great restaurants. Um, there's a beautiful high school that was just built. The mayor of Hildale, Danya Jessup, has done incredible work bringing tech companies and industry in. Um, and she was raised FLDS. And so if you go down to Short Creek now, I mean, I would, it's like any town, right? No one's mm. going to come out of their house and give you a tour because <laughs> um, yeah. it's like any city. I mean, I think we kind of mythologize these towns as being um, like stuck in the past or like right. this, just a tourist town, but it's not. I mean, it's, people live there. Okay. So no one's going to come out and show you around, but um, there's definitely historic sites you can see. So you can see the schoolhouse, you can see the historic UEP building. Um, if you know where to look, you can see the home that was the Barlow home or, you know, things like that. Cool. Um, but yeah. Awesome. Okay. So going back to this 1953 rate, sorry for the tangent there. I really just, I wanted to know about visiting. Um, so in the, in the wake of this 1953 raid, I'm curious about how the mood of the residents in the community changes after being raided by law enforcement. Like how does this, how does this like sort of like uh, change everybody's attitude and their day-to-day lives and things like that? So Short Creek began precisely out of a need to isolate and a need and the desire to keep practicing polygamy away from the eye of the government. Um, And so when the raids happened, it only kind of validated that sentiment and it, the concerns brought forth increased retrenchment. And so whereas this town was built for this reason, now it, it had to do it for survival and so over time from, you know, the raid to the present, there has been an increased need for isolation. And that really became a hallmark of the community um, during the presidency of, well, I guess he's still president of Warren Jeffs. Okay. So w- prior to 1953, was the town and were these communities um, engaging with the greater non-fundamentalist or Mormon fundamentalist society before the raid started happening? Like, was there a lot of like going in and out of the communities and being like, hey, neighbor, with their towns nearby that were non-Mormon fundamentalists? Like, was there any sort of like cross-community engagement and things like that? Yeah. So, I mean, people who were part of, you know, Mormon fundamentalists didn't only live in Short Creek, right? There was definitely fundamentalists that lived everywhere that Mormons are. And so people would definitely come and go to see family. Absolutely. Um, They went, you know, they went to school, they went to, they had jobs outside, they went to normal, they had a normal life. Um, There's no wall around Short Creek. I think people kind of imagine, because so many people have called it a compound, that I think people imagine this walled, town and that's just not what it is um like i mentioned the prairie dresses were not most of history um they were just normal people living their faith and so there was a lot of community engagement there's actually when you're driving into um hilldale there's a town right before that's called apple valley and every time i drive by it i'm always like what did these people like what are the what does the town of apple valley think um because i always kind of wonder i mean the last big town is hurricane and Hurricane Utah, I mean, it looks like hurricane. So I think people, it looks like hurricane. It's pronounced hurricane. Okay. Um, I think the people in Hurricane, they definitely know um, about Short Creek. Um, but I always kind of wonder what the really nearby town. But if you go to St. George, um, you'll still see FLDS women um, at Costco 
Sam's Club. Sure. So there's always been wide engagement or, I mean, I, I've joked that the, that Cedar City, Utah will always be children with Frappuccinos because there's always fundamental mm. FLDS people in Starbucks there. Yes. Fundamentalist Mormons drink coffee. So, um, yeah. Okay. So in the wake of raids that occurred sporadically throughout time, what are some of the penalties facing Mormon fundamentalist folks in the wake of the raids? So as a felony, technically polygamy was prosecutable to up to 15 years in prison. The reality is that polygamy wasn't always prosecuted historically. The 53 raid was, I would say, unique. Polygamy wasn't prosecuted unless it was associated with other crimes. So 2002 was actually the last, pro- last prosecuted case in Utah. Um, and it was also the first in 50 years. So the first since the raid. Um, and it was notable because it was Tom Green, not the guy from MTV, <laughs> but um, Tom Green was on Jerry Springer. So people might be somewhat familiar because oh, of yeah. Jerry Springer. Um, so he was sealed to Linda Kuntz, who was 13 at the time, and he was convicted on four counts of bigamy. So the defense in that case said that it was legal because none of his wives were legal wives, but prosecution um, said common law dictates that his behavior is illegal. So he went to prison. He was released in 2007 and he avoided further charges by living with just one wife, Linda. The other, the only other time, um, in, importantly, is we have seen charges brought against polygamists, but they're usually for other things. So, for example, in 2003, Jeremy Kingston pled guilty to incest and, quote, sexual relations with a minor. I hate that phrasing because that's rape. Um, and he was sentenced to a year in prison. He got out early for good behavior, but he did serve, I think, eight or nine months. Um, and so there have been charges brought against polygamists, but not for polygamy. Okay. So, um, so what, what, in the wake of these raids, I mean, people in the community who probably thought that they were just exercising their freedom of religion, they're probably afraid. Um, so what is like the mood like in these towns in the wake of these raids? Like, is the town nervous? Are they like always looking over their shoulder? Do they become more insular? Yeah. So there was definitely a continued need to isolate or to not come forward or to not talk about your family. I mean, there's a long history of fundamentalist children in school calling people their aunts or nanny when those are other mothers. Um, And, you know, one of the groups that I spent significant time with, their whole community moved to Nevada because of Nevada's ease on common law marriage. Um, So people were moving out. A lot of people moved out of Utah in the last you know, 20 something years or over 20 years. Um, And in Short Creek specifically, I mean, there are, a lot of people might not be familiar that Warren Jeffs was actually the principal of Yalta Academy of the school before he became the prophet. Hmm. And he, during, you know, in one of the classes, one of the classes was priesthood history, where you learn the history of the priesthood. And he taught people, he taught children about the raids. and about how they could lose their moms and they could lose their dads. So in that community specifically, there was a kind of harnessing of isolation. But outside of that, you know, independent families or families that um, were kind of in more of the Salt Lake area, they were still living in polygamy, but um, there was a concern about not publicly doing it. 
and not kind of showing up with all your wives and being like, we're a polygamous family. Um, but that de definitely doesn't mean it wasn't there. And I think the kind of it being hidden did make people believe it may, might not be as prevalent as it was. And I think that kind of accounts for the low numbers when we talk about how many polygamists there are. Okay. So, you know, in, in this, in these post raid contexts, um, people will likely remember the example of Warren Jeffs that you've brought up a couple of times, who's currently serving a life sentence on rape charges. How does Jeffs as the leader in this community play on the fears of the people in the community? So Jeffs, like you said, was ultimately sentenced to two counts of sexual assault of a child. Um, he wasn't sentenced for polygamy, mm. <laughs> fun fact. Um, and that's kind of important to that story, right? Is that polygamy is so seldomly prosecuted. And if there ever was going to be a person to bring up the charges against, it would have been him and he wasn't. So that is kind of an important thing. But it is my argument that and the argument of many people that Jeffs was successful in harnessing that isolation and weaponizing the law. So when there's fear of the law enforcement, there's usually a lower likelihood of reporting crime. We've seen mm. that in multiple communities that is not unique to Mormon fundamentalists. And I believe that he used that to his advantage because in his crimes, it would have been very easy for him to say, if you tell the police, you'll lose your dad. Gotcha. And that's not, and that's not a, you know, that's not an outrageous story. I mean, I have a friend who, when she was a child, her home was invaded, not related. That's not a crime related to polygamy at all. Um, her home was invaded and she was told that we can't call 911 because they'll take your dad. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So there's a lot of um, work that you've been doing recently because there are legal developments happening in Utah right now surrounding the legality of plural marriage. I'm curious if you can give the listeners a rundown of your work surrounding SB 102 and tell us about the significance of the legislation and how things are changing on the ground in real time right now. Yeah, so I mean, we just had a huge development in Utah. Um, Senator Deidre Henderson ran a bill, SB 102, and it was her house sponsor was Representative Lowry Snow. And so it, over the last few months, you know, I've done, I've talked very publicly about the bill, wrote an op-ed, um, and I testified in both the House and the Senate. It might, if people are interested in kind of what the conversation looked like on the ground, the audio of both committees are available um, online. Mm. People can listen to them. I have the link uh, to it. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Um, my Senate testimony is kind of a mess, but the House one's solid. Cool. Um, so... What SB 102 did is, is it did two things, and there was a lot of headlines about how polygamy is now legal or fully decriminalized, and that's not true. It's a little more complicated than that. So it did two main things. On one hand, SB 102 lowered polygamy to an infraction for otherwise law-abiding polygamists. So that's a speeding ticket. It's not okay. decriminalized. It's still a crime. It's just not a felony anymore. It's an infraction. However, on the other hand, um, there was a second part of the bill known as the enhancements, and they were a little more confusing, and a lot of people, including a lot of fundamentalists, didn't like the bill because of them. Um, and the enhancements mean that if polygamy is associated with other crimes, such as fraud, coercion, rape, abuse, there's a long list, um, polygamy will remain a felony. 
So taken together, I think it, the bill, what I really appreciated about the bill is it struck a really good balance between protecting law-abiding families and then also acknowledging victims of abuse. Okay. Well, and you also write in the piece um, that the bill isn't considered a religious freedom issue. Why? How can it not be classified as religious freedom? Because that's something that people in the United States talk about constantly. And I think that's really important to talk about because this is associated with religion, but it's not considered an issue of religious freedom in the bill, correct? Correct. The word religion, Mormon, doesn't come up at all. Um, I mean, the reality is there's people who practice polygamy without being religious. Um, Utah law, polygamy is prosecuted in Utah law for two things. It's cohabitation and reporting to be, purporting to be married. So you have to do both of those things in Utah. And the way that polygamy law works around the nation varies widely. And there was a great chart put up at the hearings that showed where the purporting to be married states are, where the cohabitation states are, so that people can kind of get a feel for what that looks like. Um, I think there's definitely something to be said about religious freedom and marriage equality. I don't discount those arguments. Um, and I, I do agree it's unconstitutional to ban polygamy. So I, I, I don't disagree with that. However, when discussing the bill and testifying before the Senate and the House, harm reduction was my first priority. And I think it was the priority of most people. And I think I speak for, yeah, I think I speak for most people who lobbied for the bill um, when I say that. There are absolutely fundamentalist Mormons who spoke about their families and the second-class citizenry that the law created, but um, harm reduction had to be first. And the reason I say that is, on one hand, the law created barriers to resources. The stigma, the legal status, it created barriers to employment, medical care, education, mental health services, the list goes on. Things we take for granted. Um, an incredible woman uh, named Shirley Draper. Um, if anyone is interested in donating to people either trying to leave fundamentalist Mormonism or women trying to stay, um, she was raised FLDS and she started an incredible organization called Cherish Families. It's the only one I know that is willing to help people on both sides of mm. that. It's really great. It's based in Short Creek. It's incredible. Um, but she testified about when she left and her mom tried to leave and her mom went to get a driver's license. And the clerk said, we don't want you. And she ended up going back and she died of a preventable illness. Mm. So on one hand, the law has put up a barrier to very real resources that people need that they might not have access to. Um, on the other hand, there is a significant barrier to law enforcement. Um, during the testimony, the Domestic Violence Coalition testified of the quote, chilling effect of HB 99, which was a bill in 2017 that reaffirmed the felony status of polygamy. And she testified that since that bill passed, there has been a decrease in reporting of domestic violence from polygamous families. So people are less likely to report crime when there's a concern that they could lose their children to protective services. Um, and there's a there's, you're less likely to report if you yourself are a felon. So that is kind of what I mean. And I do want to note, um, I want to be really careful when I say that most of the people that spoke out against the bill were people who came from a very specific fundamentalist community. They came from the Kingston community. And the women who spoke out against the bill were victims of unimaginable abuse. And so I do think it's important in this that, you know, when we talk about 
these aren't crimes that are polygamous crimes, right? You know, rape is not a polygamist crime. It's a problem across the board. And it's an under-prosecuted problem across the board. But I want to be clear that, you know, the hope in this bill was that polygamists who are participating in those crimes would still be considered felons. And we need to believe these women that come forward because the reality is there is immense violence in some of these communities and immense abuse. And that needs to be dealt with. Um, in the hearing, I talked about a friend of mine. He unfortunately died last year. He was um, one of Warren Jeff's children. And he faced unimaginable abuse, unimaginable abuse growing up. Um, and he really kind of, at the end of his life, talked about how he thought the law helped create his dad. Mm. And how the law, how his dad was able to weaponize the law. And so he he didn't publicly talk about that a lot, but we had conversations and it was his death that really made me believe more firmly than ever that this needed to be about harm reduction first and foremost. Um, because these are real, there's real victims in these communities. There's people who die. Um, Short Creek has a very high suicide rate. So we need to be talking about harm reduction. And I think that, yes, we can talk about religious freedom. Yes, we can talk about marriage equality, but we've been talking about that for a very long time. And mm. we really haven't been talking about harm reduction enough. And I think that's the game changer. So obviously as like a researcher and writer, you can't like divulge your sources or anything or break any kinds of anonymity, but you speak with a lot of fundamentalist women often, it seems like, um, like it's like a part of your regular life. How do you go about facilitating trusting relationships with the women who tell you about their experiences? So I think um, it really boils down to time and showing up. So I was talking to uh, my best friend yesterday. She's um, a professor at University of Arizona, Daisy Vargas. She's great. Um, and she made a comment. She was like, I don't remember a time where you ever turned down an offer to go to church. And that's true. I went to a lot of church. I was consistently willing to show up when people were generous enough to welcome me, knowing that they never had to. They never had to welcome me. Um, but then bigger than that, methodologically, I was trained as an ethnographer. And I distinctly remember my advisor telling me the importance of being fully immersed for a year. And to some people that might seem like a long time, but I packed my bags and I moved to Utah. So studying lived religion means, it means being present where that religion is lived. So in that way, um, simply being present was really important. And then within that, I gained a reputation really early on of taking people seriously. And that's something that I value and I continues to inform my work. But also I've never hidden who I was. Um, I was always transparent and willing to be vulnerable with my own beliefs and the way in which you know, I shaped the field just because ethnographers do. And also in the ways the field shaped me. I mean, I mentioned, you know, I'm writing about friends at this point, And I'm also writing about friends who've died or have been hurt. Um, and I ask the same of my informants. And so I think that's how communication and trust is built. It takes time for people to believe that I wouldn't violate their confidence or mock their faith, but it happens. And so I think the big thing is um, being responsible and knowing the communities you're working with. I don't think we do anyone any favors writing about, you know, yearning for Zion or Short Creek if we haven't spent considerable time there or know people who have spent considerable time there. Um, but I do also want to add that there are incredible fundamentalist Mormon families practicing polygamy who have worked tirelessly 
on legislation. Um, Joe Darger and his family, Vicki Val and Alina, they were instrumental in the bill passing. Um, and, you know, I'm really thankful for all of the fundamentalist and polygamous families that welcomed me into their lives. And I hope that this will be a step for them to be able to live their lives safely in Utah again. So is harm reduction like the biggest change in the conversation as opposed to like five or 10 years ago? Yeah. So, I mean, even just a few years ago, um, in 2017, like I mentioned, House Bill 99 reaffirmed the felony status of polygamy. And then in um, just last year, HB 214 listed bigamy as one of the violent crimes that you could seek reparations for. So I think harm reduction was the shift in the conversation. Mm. I think it is what made, because people have been talking about marriage equality for years. People, there have been demonstrations at the Utah Capitol for years of just good polygamous families um, trying to be able to be publicly family. Um, in talking to, the first time I spoke to Senator Henderson, she shared her experience talking to people in Short Creek and meeting people who lived through the raid, people who learned about the raid in school, um, who, you know, experienced abuse. And it was those arguments that really shaped the conversation this time. And so I think harm reduction really was what changed the game. And in talking, when I was, when I lobbied for the bill, I spoke with a lot of legislators. And unfortunately, I mean, there were many that didn't want to hear about religious freedom. They didn't mm. want to hear marriage equality. They, that didn't matter to them. Um, but the minute you say, you know, what about those women that are afraid to report? That kind of caught the ear of people that otherwise were very shut off from the conversation. So even with, you know, I watched legislators vote yes, who I was sure were going to vote no. Mm. And I think they would have had the conversation been different. Okay. So this is so interesting. And like being aware of this will undoubtedly, you know, foster bridge building between people in our country, people who are learning about this for the first time, who may have had like a really, you know, bad taste in their mouth about this issue now will be, you know, maybe reframing the way they're thinking about this. So I'm curious what you, cause you follow this closer than probably anyone. Um, what would you encourage all people who found this conversation interesting to do, read, watch, listen to, if they want to extend their learning on this topic from here? Yeah, so a few things. So Craig Foster and Marianne Watson wrote a great book called American Polygamy. It's a great introduction to the topic. It's, you know, a fairly easy read. You don't need a lot of previous knowledge. Um, and it's interesting because Craig is an LDS genealogist and Marianne is an AUB woman. And so a fundamentalist and an LDS person came together to write this very solid book. So that's kind of a first step. Um, the Sunstone Education Foundation is an organization that holds an annual symposium every year and Mormons from across the restoration go. So for like last year, there was a kickball game. I got to serve as the umpire, one of nice. my proudest moments um, for ex-Mormons versus fundamentalists. So it's not just academic, it's also a lot of fun and you can meet people in this community that, and I think it's a unique opportunity to have conversations that you might not be able to have normally. Um, Lindsay Henson Park has an incredible podcast. She is a pioneer and I use that term <laughs> endearingly for her um, in the movement of 
talking to fundamentalism, talking about to fundamentalists and sharing the history. And I would check out her podcast, um, Year of Polygamy. Uh, it goes through the whole history. Um, we just did an episode on the bill. And so definitely talk to her. Um, and then if you're in Utah, I would check out Benchmark Books. Um, they're a bookstore in Salt Lake. Give them your money. <laughs> Get on their mailer. Um, a lot of fundamentalist leaders send their revelations there. You can buy them. Um, mm -hmm. They have an incredible, they have great histories written by the community. So those are some great kind of first steps, places to turn. Wonderful. And if people are, you know, being introduced to you and your work for the first time, where would you send people if they want to find you and follow you and know more about what it is that you're doing? So I'm on academia.edu. I don't really update it regularly though, but I'm really active on Twitter at Christina Marta R. Uh, right now, most of my content is COVID-19, but regular programming is fundamentalist Mormonism. Do you have articles that you've written in the past, like uploaded on your academia.edu if people wanted to read some of your stuff? I have one on the law of purity, which is kind of a more fringe okay. fundamentalist doctrine. And then also we've talked about your article that you wrote for the Salt Lake Tribune that we referred to uh, titled Making Polygamy a Crime Hasn't Helped Its Victims, which I read the other day and really liked it. Um, so I would definitely encourage people to read that as well. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. Hey. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.